You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. We want to inspire you to be in your financial front seat by knowing what you own, what you owe, how to reach your goals, and by having an annual checkup. Learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. Her money comes to you through PRX. Hey, everybody, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. Thank you for coming along with me today. I was thinking back before I started this show about those occasions where you meet somebody and you know, oh my gosh, I am going to like you forever. I had one of those occasions with our guest today, Soledad O'Brien. We were both babies at NBC (laughs) News, and we went out to lunch and sat down at the table, and Soledad said, I hope you're one of those women who eats, because I eat. I hate going out to lunch with somebody who just picks. Salad and seltzer. I'm yes, like, yeah, yeah, we can't be friends. Exactly. Can't be friends. Exactly. But and that was a, literally one million years ago. One million years ago. And you don't look any different at all. <laughs> you as well. Clean living, obviously. Well, maybe maybe <laughs> on your account. I just paid up front, I think. <laughs> anyway, I want to remind everybody who, of course, knows that you are an award-winning journalist, speaker, author, philanthropist. You're new show these days is on Hearst Television. It's the political magazine program Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien, but you're also the founder and CEO of Starfish Media Group, which we will talk about. You report for Real Sports on HBO with our friend Bryant Gumbel, the PBS NewsHour WebMD. You've written a couple of books. And with your husband, Brad, you're the founder of the Powerful Foundation that sends Sounds girls. Sounds busy, doesn't it? You are busy. <laughs> and you've got four kids. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. that's oh, them. Oh, yeah. Them. But thank you for being My here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who are just catching up with you, you are a native New Yorker. You Strong Island. Oh, yes, raised by academics. How has your background, your parents were both immigrants, you've come through this period of turmoil in our society. How has your background and all that's going on influenced the work that you're doing today? I think in terms of the kinds of stories I wanted to cover, I really enjoyed looking at the kinds of stories that would fly under the radar. We ended up, when I left NBC News, where we met and went on to CNN, uh, where I started anchoring their morning show, we started doing a bunch of documentaries that looked at, uh, we did a a famous one called Black in America for many years Mm -hmm. and Latino in America. And we did others that focused on education. In fact, um, we looked at women who had worked as rescuers uh, at Ground Zero in New York City after 9-11. I'm really just trying to tackle stories where I think people thought they knew the story but didn't necessarily know the story. You know, who were the the people? What, what were the stories that flew under the radar? And I think coming from parents who were immigrants who were new to America and who put a lot of um, stock in education, I think that really prepared me. Also, you know, my mom's black, my dad's white, and so a lot of conversations about race and class were always very just personally interesting to me to cover in documentaries. But I also think from my perspective, my parents were very safe. 
They really thought of, you know, you go and you get a job. They were not entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. They did not, you know, they both had good, solid jobs. A, A teacher, my mom was a public school teacher, high school teacher in Long Island in my community. My dad was a professor at SUNY Stony Brook. And both of those were were very good middle class, maybe upper middle class jobs. And that meant a home and and a vacation and, you know, very just a lot of stability. And I think um, when we started our foundation, one of the things that we wanted to give to the young women that we support was that sense of stability. We never had a moment where we thought, uh, maybe we won't eat tonight, or maybe, you know, maybe we won't have money to, to turn the lights back on if they go out, or maybe, in fact, I remember in college um, as an undergrad, I overspent on my phone bill about $400, and my father was— Whoa! I know. that. But you by must the way, have had a long-distance boyfriend. Uh, you know, I think I just stayed on the phone a lot and fell asleep <laughs> with it. And, and I remember my dad was furious, but he wrote the check to pay it. And for a lot of our scholars— um, you know, there's no one to write the check to pay it. They sometimes have to drop out of school because they've gotten themselves into, and it was just sheer stupidity. I had no one to blame but myself. It was my fault. You know, but obviously young people do a lot of stupid things. And it really made me realize just how much just being in a stable family where Mm -hmm. there was a lot of ability to bounce back from stupid things or mistakes that a lot of our scholars don't have. One of the things that I read about you was that when you were a little girl, your parents, when you asked them for horseback riding lessons, didn't say no, but they didn't say yes. They said get they thought, a job. They thought they were saying no by saying get a job. They said get a, <laughs> they said, get a job. And, you know, it's interesting. They said, sure, if you pay for it yourself. My parents, my father was a college professor. My mother taught second grade. So a lot of similarities. And I had a job at 11. Yeah. Well, that was really the only way. I mean, also, I think at the time— you know, you had a, we had an allowance, but it literally was dollars a week. Right. It wasn't enough to pay for anything other than candy or something like that. So, yeah, it was um, – I think my parents were fine with me working, and I had done a little bit of babysitting. But if I really wanted to be serious about riding lessons, and I, at 13 I really did, I had to get a job. And so I started working in the summer mucking stalls at the place where I was going to ride. And I got paid $35, of which 25 went to the lesson – so I got to keep uh, $10 from, from mucking the stalls. And uh, and I loved it. I mean, the only thing I wanted to spend money on was, was horseback riding lessons anyway. <laughs> but I, I do. I think those sorts of scenarios are very good for kids to recognize responsibility and how to pay for and think about things that they want and goals that they have and are setting for themselves. And, you know, my, I was one of six. So while my parents, you know, had steady incomes, they were not wealthy. And I think they certainly weren't going to be able to tackle expensive hobbies for each of their six kids. That just wasn't going to happen. Um, and so I really, from the early age, I was working a lot to pay for the things I wanted. And when you graduated from college, was your eye on a job like your parents had? What What was it that made you transition into producing your own content, becoming an entrepreneur and, and running things? Yeah, my job, my, originally my eye was always on a job and the next goal would be a better paying job. So I started working as an intern at $11,000 a year and then moved up to a writer trainee at $25,000 a year, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And really it was literally that. Does it pay more? 
you know, it didn't matter what the hours were. The, the job should be a little bit better than the job I have, and does it pay a little bit more? And that was kind of how I was making those decisions. You know, fast forward a lot of years. When I left CNN, I'd been there about 10 years. This was five years ago. I really cared about doing certain kinds of projects. I just decided that I thought my time was more useful doing the things that I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, I can... I think I can fund these things. I think I'll be able to structure a business. And that was the hardest part. I mean, I didn't have any good financial background. I, I wish I had taken accounting classes. I wish I'd really known how to do a budget, think about budgeting, think about structuring a business. You know, if you were going to start a business tomorrow, you know, what would it look like? And, right. and, and, and what, where would the bodies be? And how would they relate to each other? What would be the hierarchy? And and do you have HR? And, and who handles all your computers? And uh, and what does your office look like? And how's it literally laid out? You know, all those things were things that I kind of had to learn on the fly. So um, it was a very, I wouldn't say rough first year, but it was very stressful because I just didn't know a lot. We were really lucky. CNN came in as our very first client, and we had a couple of great clients. Um, so we were profitable from the get-go. But it just every day felt like a learning experience to the point where you're like, you know, today I'd like to not learn. I'd like to not learn. If I don't want to learn anything. I would like to just execute today. I'd just like to do a good job. Um, I remember one time someone said to me, you know, something about quarterly taxes. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I wrote that check last week. <laughs> like, right. what, what, quarterly taxes? What? What are quarterly taxes? Uh, because I, I literally had no idea. And uh, so it was a very painful a journey for the first about a year and a half until I really began to to figure it out. I, I probably one of my strengths is that I don't make the same mistake twice, and I think that that was good. How did you figure out who you needed to flesh out the organization? Because we're going through a little bit of a growth spurt with her money and her money media right now, and I found I was great with me. I yeah. was great yeah. with me and an assistant. I three was really good. It gets harder. Yeah, it certainly does. I think you have to really think about what does that person do? Literally, they come into the office, they put their jacket down, and what in your head do you see them doing? For me, I always hired people around, you know, here's what I don't want to do anymore. So it was a very specific interviewing process. And I... I like to interview and hire people on their potential, and that's not always the best way to hire people. So I found that finding a team of people to hire somebody where I got to interact and have my questions, but also having four or five other people uh, who would come in from different perspectives to really, you know, think about the person, it wasn't just my take on them. Uh, that was really helpful. I think that made our, our hiring flawless. I mean, really successful. That By the end, we have 11 full-time employees, and, and we got very good at hiring people. And at the beginning, we were you know, not good. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, people who, when I started, my husband, he's a banker, and he had a lot of clients who were entrepreneurs. So he started introducing me to just people he knew who would just meet with me. And a lot of the advice I would get would be, you know, fire fast, which was helpful. And everybody would leave you with a just a piece of advice about, you know, here's how to think about your business. You know, if you're thinking about space, it's better to have everybody packed into a space and uncomfortable, and you're giving them free lunch and beer on Friday than 
overdo it and overextend. My team is smiling right now because they are packed <laughs> in like, tight. Right, and they're like, I think we're getting, I think we're getting beer Friday. Then I think, that it, but, but you know, it it just helps you think about other ways around challenges that they had obviously been through because these were very successful entrepreneurs, most of whom yeah. took their companies public and made gajillions of dollars. But there were some truths that they could share with me, and that was really helpful. I want to talk a little bit more about your life and the moment that we're in in time. But before we get there, I want to remind everybody that conversations like these are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Together, we want to inspire all women to be in the financial front seat, which means knowing what you owe, what you own, how to reach your goals, having a financial checkup at least once a year, from understanding the basics of market volatility and risk to creating an investing plan, Fidelity can help, and you can learn more at fidelity.com slash front seat. We are happily talking with Soledad O'Brien, host of Matter of Fact. I read that you are now in the position of not just running a business and running a family, but taking care of your parents. Yeah. How are they? And how has that changed your life? They're not well. Um, They're very frail. They're in their mid, going on late 80s. And so my mom's had dementia for a few years. Sorry. Very, very weak and hasn't walked for a long time. And my dad has just started developing dementia. So it's a bit of a heartbreak um, because, you know, as much as I have covered these kinds of stories in the past, you know, it really comes on so fast. And one thing that's always so surprising to me is how unprepared my parents were. They were really good at saving money. And my dad actually had a business, his family had a business in Australia. He's Australian. And so they've had some cash put away. But they had no, they have no long-term care. Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't even think they thought about it. And, you know, and so, and I never asked them. You know, I never really sat down because when you do sit down with people who are of sound mind, they always say, oh, your mother and I have it covered. Don't you worry. And they don't. Right. They don't, actually. So the good news was financially they had some money. The bad news was it was all over the place. And my sister and I, and, and who were in New York at the time, you know, really had to step in and handle the accounts and really think about sort of every dime. And, and you know, I remember once when it really all turned, my dad said, he said, I think I'm being scammed. I said, what's going on? He said, well, I got a call that um, I had a rebate check from the IRS, but to get it, it's about $11,000, but to get it, I need to send them an iTunes card for $400. I said, oh, my God, well, you didn't do that, did you? And he said, yeah, I did. I, I said, the government doesn't take iTunes cards, Daddy. He said, well, I sent it, and uh, I was waiting for the check, and the guy called back and said, oh, you know what? Actually, we're going to need another $400 iTunes card before we, so we can send you the full amount. At that point, he told so, you? No, no, no. He sent that one, too. Oh, no. And then the third one, he said, I think it's a scam. and. You know, just elderly people are so preyed upon because they're confused and they don't they don't understand how iTunes cards work, right? They just right. don't fully... Or that the government is not going to call you. Oh, it just broke my heart. And and so, we, you know, but, but by then, it's really too late, right? Because you, that's when I first realized, like, oh, my gosh, I think my dad actually doesn't fully, is not fully present in all that's going on. I mean, he sort of is just confused, and, and it's very easy for a slick talker to confuse him. Um, so luckily, he only lost about $800, but could have been much, much worse. I mean, other people get scammed for far more. But um, 
he he was very embarrassed, you know, and 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 he and and I think also people as they start getting dementia, they know it, you know, they know sure. they're confused. So every so often he'd look at me and say, "This doesn't make any sense, does it?" And I'd say, "No, it doesn't really make any sense." But that's okay. You know what? We'll figure Let's it out. Um, but I I I've really it's made me insane about being very organized, um, and really being just. You know, having every single thing I want laid out and and how I want to live my life. You know, where do I want to end up? Do I want to be in an apartment in Manhattan? Do I want to be in a house? My parents have both have round-the-clock care. It's extremely expensive. They're, they, they're not prepared for it. So they basically just burn money because they don't have insurance covering it. And we just never had that conversation because I think when we did, and we didn't really try, but when we did, it was more like, so this you, you guys are good, right? Yeah, we're good. <laughs> that was it. And I think a lot of people have a conversation that way. I think you know? so. They don't really dig into like, so let's go through bank accounts, let's walk through, and let's do a, a, a fake version of what this might cost so we can just have a template for what this is going to look like. And a real discussion about what you might want if something were to happen to you. I, I had the very, very difficult discussion with my dad when he was not well about the healthcare proxy and life support and what does that actually mean you know and and it was incredibly painful to have to say do you want us to not pull the plug for a while. And also, it's a conversation you really should have when the person can have a discussion about it. Exactly. I mean, we just don't do that conversation at 60 and no. 65, right? Which would be when, you know, so what kind of a funeral do you want? Yeah. And where would you like to live? And do you want to move in with your kids or or something else? And, you know, if you were so ill, because at that age, I find people are like, well, let me tell you what I would want. Exactly. I mean, and as they get older, and especially in the middle of a crisis, then it just becomes awkward and miserable and terrible and scary. And, and everybody's crying and it's too real. Sadly, I've learned a lot of my lessons far too late and hopefully can, you know, share it with other people. But it's it's not been easy. Well, and you'll have it for your own kids. Yeah, I, I would definitely. Uh, you know, what's been interesting is seeing my husband's parents who are about 10 years younger than mine, completely organized about their finances, about their health, about where they want to live, about are they an apartment that has an elevator? I mean, all these things that are so critical when you're 80, but you don't really think about when you're a healthy 65-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a gift, right? To have done it ahead of time. You are in a new season, a matter of fact. Yeah, we just kicked off our fourth season. So tell us about the show. Sure. So so the show is produced. We produce it. Starfish Media produces it along with Hearst TV. And we're in about 90% of the country. So we're we're syndicated. So we're on affiliates all over the country. And, um, and because of that, it was kind of weird for me. I'd always done shows that were on at one certain time. So you'd say, okay, I'll see you tomorrow at five o'clock or whatever. <laughs> but in affiliate, it's like five o'clock for you, but eight o'clock for you, but three o'clock for you. Uh, we It airs on mostly on Sunday mornings around the country. And I think because the conversations around politics have become so insane and so fraught with anger and hostility and and really most of cable TV has become people just screaming at each other. I mean, yeah. really, I can't watch it. It's just kind of I can't wake up to it because it just makes me anxious. And I, I love TV. And I have TVs all of my, like, I love TV news. Yeah. So for me to say, like, oh, please turn that off. I'll say to my husband, we just turn that off. I can't watch. Yeah. Um, so our show is the opposite of that. We pre-tape it. So we're, we're, we're a taped show or a magazine show. And that means we cover a lot of issues, but with 
context. So we talk about, you know, well, what is gerrymandering? So why does this particular woman who who needs insulin for her daughter, how, how do we come to a place where she can't afford insulin? And she has a job and her husband has a job. You know, what is the First Amendment and what does it cover? And how do you think about putting opportunity into some of the poorest communities around the country which are include cities and towns that are Republican and also Democratic. Like, there are areas in which Democrats and Republicans are really working together because they are dealing with the same issues. So we have a chance to do, I think, much more interesting stuff than just, he thinks this, she thinks the opposite yep. of this. Go at it, people. <laughs> and uh, and so the show's really grown by leaps and bounds over the last year. And I think that means I get a, a new set, <laughs> which we'll Excellent. unveil. <laughs> Yay, we're going to have a good rating, so you get a new set, uh, good lighting. Uh, And so we'll get our new set in the next couple of weeks. That's terrific. As we head into the midterms, what are you hearing from the people that are watching you, from the women who are watching you? What are the areas that are most concerning to them, specifically about their money? Yes, and I I think the interesting thing is – the impact of tariffs. Uh, We talked to a lot of women who are entrepreneurs and who are farmers or in farming families, and they're really struggling and terrified because I think uh, most of the ones who I talked to have voted for President Trump and are really, they won't quite say they're regretting their vote, but they are absolutely frantic that their family farm is going to go under. Because even though there's been a bailout, to some degree, it never actually hits dollar for dollar. And as you know, all of this is about how an industry feels. Mm-hmm. So if the industry feels afraid, they can't get loans. They can't um, They can't build their business. They can't grow. They can't hire people. And so it's really been problematic. No one has said to me, this is going to change my, my, my vote in 2020. But I think we're so far away from that. I think people, though, are angry and and somewhat embarrassed. And I think it's so local to come back to the point that you were talking about with farms. I I was driving into the city this morning listening to MSNBC, Jacob Sobaroff. Actually, it was the Today Show. Jacob Sobaroff had a piece where he went to Maine and was talking to voters about their concerns. And it was the paper mill and the lobster farm. Just basic and, businesses, right? You know, it always comes down to that. It yeah, comes down to what's going to happen to my family and my job and my sense of security. And I think from what I mean, our original reporting, most people, when we would interview them, they would say, you know, Donald Trump is a businessman. And so that means that he's going to understand what we're going through. And I think for many of them, they're recognizing that maybe doing a deeper dive into the success and failures of some of his businesses would give them more insight into what they're experiencing now. Soledad O'Brien the show is matter of fact. It's such a pleasure to talk pleasure to you. Pleasure is mine. It's so nice to catch up with it's you. We nice. should do this every 20 years, uh, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be right back with Kelly and Mailbag. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. That was fun. Adding her to my girl crush list. Oh, yeah, she's fabulous. She's really great. I was reading about her before the show, of course. And... One of her pieces of advice that she received from her parents was to always be yourself. She said when she first started out as a journalist, she was trying to be a 70-year-old man. Yeah. That resonated with me. Me too. You too. And then it's like, so she finally found her voice within her journalism career. And look at her now and look at you now. So it was was really good to hear her say that. I think— It took me a long time to realize that being not only a woman, but being a 
young-looking woman of small stature was not a bad thing. Ah. Um, You know, when I started in financial journalism, it was all gray-haired men. And I think being a woman, at least in this discipline, was a little different and Mm -hmm. a little jarring. And I have no doubt that it helped me. When do you remember owning that moment or internalizing what you just said? Because I imagine it wasn't. I think it was an evolution. No, yeah. it was definitely an evolution. And I'm remembering suits that that I wore suits. I yeah. mean, we all wore suits. When I graduated from college, your mother, if you were lucky, or your father took you to buy an interview suit. Today, I don't even think we necessarily take our sons to buy interview suits. I mean, mine has a jacket and tie. He actually does have a suit, which he needed for other occasions. (laughs) But, you know, I can't remember the last time I interviewed somebody who was wearing a suit, except for a CEO in an office, right? But if I was interviewing somebody to hire them, you know, I expect people to come in looking polished and presentable. But a suit? No. It's so different now. It's so different. But I think I loosened up as my suits loosened up. (laughs) You've heard me quote before from Charlotte Krupp's book. Charlotte Krupp was this wonderful fashion and style reporter. She worked for the Today Show, but she also worked in a number of different magazines. She wrote a great book called How Not to Look Old. And it was 10 different things from wear pink lipstick to cut bangs, which you'll notice I did at age 50. But one of the things that she said was break up your suits. You know, take the jacket, wear it, but don't wear it with the skirt or the pants. Wear it separately. And I know suits are now having another moment. Yeah, I, 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 I was I just read about Vogue. to say, I love I a good suit. <laughs> and love they, a good suit. And they are definitely having a moment, but it's not a necessity that mm-hmm. every time you're on television anymore, you wear a suit. In fact, I can't remember the last time I wore a suit. Okay. okay. What do we have? Questions. Our first question this week is from Robin. My daughter just went away to school in another state, and I'd like to send her a little bit of money monthly to cover incidentals. While I'd rather send her a handwritten letter and a check, she would rather use Venmo. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you could relate. I feel uncomfortable giving out my bank account information and want to avoid any fees that Venmo might charge. She likes the convenience of Venmo. However, I've encouraged her to download the bank app, which allows her to make deposits instantly by taking pictures front and back of the check and submitting it that way. Do you have any thoughts on using a service like Venmo or PayPal for monthly transactions like this? Okay, uh, Robin, we just have to get over it. <laughs> yeah. That's that's the advice. And I recently did a segment on the Today Show about this with Kathy Lee and Hoda. You should look at it because Kathy Lee feels exactly like you do. She kept saying the <laughs> so entire funny. segment, can't I just write a check? Yep. And the answer is with your kids, you could, but there's also a chance that that check will end up at the bottom of a drawer, never deposited mm-hmm. or lost, and you'll have to spend endless hours calling and saying, are you going to deposit my check? Venmo is safe, and it's easy. So is Zelle. So are a number of other payment services and apps. Consumer Reports recently did a deep dive into five different apps and basically came out saying they are all good to go. Venmo is the one that I use. The only caveats that I would set out for you and for your child are that if you're going to use Venmo, you want to make sure that 
the person that you're sending money to is the person you think you're sending money to. Sometimes names are very confusable on these different apps, and you've got to make sure that you've got the right person. So double check there. If there are pictures attached, that's a really good way to make sure that you know who you're sending money to. Because if you make a mistake and you send money to, say, the wrong Kelly Hultgren, then they actually have to send it back to you. You have to nicely write them a note, say, could you please send me back this money that I sent you? And the, the services will get involved, but sometimes it takes a couple of days to get them involved. And so you're better off just making sure you got the right person to begin with. Mm-hmm. The other piece of advice is turn off the social feed. So mm, yes. So Venmo in particular has a social element to it where everybody can see who you paid and for what with all the emojis that you attach to it. Yeah. Just just turn it off That's so ridiculous. that it's so that it's private. Yeah. But but other than that, you are good to go. And just so you know, people are using that for stalking their exes. It's like one source of information now that people are using to figure out like what their exes are doing or who their exes are with. And spending money on. And, yeah, yeah. And spending money on. It's crazy. Um, I'm trying to get my mom on Venmo. Yeah. yeah. Tell I her order, to call me. I owed her some money and I was like, are you on Venmo? She's like, yes. I was like, great. I'll Venmo you. She's like, no. She's like, I downloaded <laughs> it. She's like, step one was downloading it. And I feel like we're going to have like a few months until she's actually willing to use it. You know, Zelle is very, very easy also. And Zelle is attached to your bank. Um, the other thing Robin asked about, and I, I should answer this part of it, is the fee. So the apps themselves are free. But if you are using a credit card as part of the transaction, there is a fee. So Ah. use it with a debit card. Use it with a bank account. Don't insert a credit card into the mix. That's tricky. And then Venmo is partnering with Uber now so that you can pay for your Ubers with Venmo. And I feel like that is just easy or more easy spending waiting to happen. Well, we know. We had the folks at Finder.com do some research specifically for us. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Money flies through our fingers with these services way too fast. Yep. Goodness. Okay. And we'll do one from Marlene. Where would be a good place to invest $10,000? That's it. Love that question. Um, (laughs) Look, okay, without saying it depends, it really does depend. It depends on what your needs are for that money. And so if that $10,000 is a long-term investment, meaning you are not going to need that money to pay for something in the next three to five years, then I would say put it in an account where you can get some tax advantages, a 401k, an IRA, a Roth, where you're not going to get a tax deduction for making the contribution, but it's going to grow tax-free, and then invest it in a very diversified way. My feeling on investing is boring is better. I spent a couple of years on Wall Street learning how to be a stock picker, and I am not a good stock picker. (laughs) And for that reason, I just believe in covering your bases. So low cost or no cost index funds where you are just essentially buying the entire market. And People are going to think, oh, yeah, no cost. Well, it's probably a good time to mention that our sponsor, Fidelity, actually did just roll out two zero percent, zero expense, no cost index funds with no minimum. So you can invest your entire $10,000 if you want, but you can also invest 100 or 10. Hmm. 
That was a really good reminder. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Marlene. And we'll do now one from a different Kelly. I have gotten in the habit of getting my free credit reports each year. However, when I go to TransUnion's website, it redirects me to annualcreditreport.com to get my TransUnion credit report. Do you know if this is really the only way to get my TransUnion report? It seems to me that there should be an option on the website. I just want to make sure I'm not getting scammed. You're not getting scammed. When the government set up the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it stipulated that all three of the major credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, had to come together, set up a website so that you could get one free credit report from each of them every single year. They did that. The website is annualcreditreport.com. And so when they send you there, it is perfectly legitimate, and you should make a habit of going every four months and pulling one report from each of the bureaus on a rotating basis so that you're getting eyes on your report at least that frequently. Do you have to unfreeze in order to pull? No. That's good to know. And the freezing... I mean, I'm really happy that I did it, but I just moved, so I had an address change. And you had to unfreeze? Oh, no, it triggered. It triggered all oh. these alerts, which is great, but it also scared me. Just heads up for anyone else. Who's moving. Who's moving or, like, has changes that you do on your own end. Like, that will happen. Yeah, I, I think freezing is just, in my mind, a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. It's something that we should be doing like we're getting an annual physical, yep. like we tie our shoes. Just keep your credit frozen. It's the safest way to go through life. Totally. Well, thank you, Jean, and thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thanks, Kelly. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment. Since we're already on the subject of credit, I wanted to talk about building credit for kids in college and right out of college. Hattie, who is one of my reporters, she's 24 years old, fresh out of grad school. She still doesn't have a credit card, and it's not like she hasn't tried to get one, but every time she's applied, she's been denied. That's because her debt-to-income ratio is pretty crummy due to her student loans, and she didn't have any credit built up while she was in school. The lesson to take from this is that whether you're a parent of a college student or a college student yourself, building credit while still in school, it's not just smart, it's doable. Now, that doesn't mean you can just apply for and get a card of your own. Thanks to the card Act. In order to get a card, if you're not 21 and you don't have independent income and you don't have a parent who is willing to co-sign, that's no longer easy. I'm not a fan of co-signing, but there are other maneuvers to consider. For example, adding a child as an authorized user to a credit card of yours, which will report your good behavior on their behalf, that's one smart move to make. It will help your child build a credit history of their own. Just make sure you pick up the phone, you call the credit company, and you make sure that they are indeed reporting on behalf of that child. Students can also consider getting a secured card, which allows funding the card by depositing cash upfront with the issuing 
bank. There's no credit check required. Student cards are another option. They generally have higher interest rates but low credit lines. So once your child turns 21, they're a lower risk way to get that credit history going. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Soledad O'Brien for the great conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Track Tribe, and our show comes to you through PRX. Join us next week. We'll be back with the fabulous Lisa Oz and Jill Herzig. We'll be talking about all things related to your health, and we'll talk soon.